I don't believe I would be where I am today without the life impacting events that I have experienced. I think they have given me a lot of resilience. Hi, everyone, and thank you so much for listening in. I am Roberta the illustrator behind Happy Impulse. And this is Happy Impulse Unfiltered, a bi-weekly podcast where we talk about the bullshit happening in our society and I create art about it. Because the more we talk about this shit, these issues, the more we can change and better the world around us. So welcome to Happy Impulse Unfiltered. And as always, thank you for giving a fuck. I'm super stoked and I want to welcome Haley Hasten to the podcast. Haley is a sex educator, activist, and works in the erotic labor field. So Haley, thank you so much for being here. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm super stoked that you had the time to talk with me today. So before we dive in, can you briefly tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? I am a sex educator. I do photography. I do erotic labor. Right now I'm based out of D.C., And I do a lot of advocacy work around like sex worker advocacy, consent, pleasure-based education, inclusivity within sex education system and therapy system. I focus my work on people who have experienced sexual trauma, whether that's sexual assaults, sex trafficking, and then separately as well as like empowering sex workers and finding their identity within the therapy space is kind of like what I want to focus on for the rest of my career. So how shall I address you? Just my name, and then I use Haley and Haley's for my pronouns. So, name all the time. Nice. Yeah. So, your pronouns are actually your name. Yes. My pronouns are actually my name. I think ever since like a young age, it's always felt like very impersonal and just didn't never sat with me right. And I was like, you know my name. Why can't you call me by my name? And then I think maybe last year, I learned that your pronouns can also be your name, which I thought was like, wow, oh my God, there's people who also feel the same way I do um, in terms of pronouns being their name. But there are spaces where I know that that's not as acceptable or seen. And so I use she, her in those spaces as well. Well, I'm going to try to go by your preferred pronouns. Thank you. But if I fuck up, (laughs) please correct me. And I mean, that I'll honestly be like, "Eh, eh, eh, fail. (laughs) So you have an interesting viewpoint about consent as a whole, and that's definitely an area of your focus. Do you mind diving a little bit deeper about your thoughts on consent? Not at all. I absolutely love talking about consent. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, and so my sex education background growing up was very interesting, very heteronormative, and very cisgendered as well. And I don't even think we were really taught consent in the first place. Maybe in high school, they started to bring it up, but more in like a victim blaming kind of way. And then even learn what coercion was probably until a few years ago. And that blew my mind. So I was like, oh, so the majority of my experiences have been coercive and not enthusiastic. Yes, consent. And so that's just like made me like want to like grieve my inner child and like everything that I've experienced. But then it has helped knowing that what occurred wasn't normal and wasn't consent. And that was coercion. So it's definitely like helped in ways, but it also like really fucked me up in other ways. Well, do you mind diving into ways that's helped you and ways that's fucked you up? Yeah. So I am someone who identified today as a survivor of assault. I can sometimes identify as a person who has been impacted by someone who's a victim of it. Some days a survivor. Depends how I'm feeling in that moment. And so today I'm feeling as someone who has survived assault. And I think for me, the hardest part is the way that media, news, and TV shows portray sexual assault and domestic violence. It's usually more on the very graphic, horrific side. And It's not really talked about the more mundane, less newsworthy ways that assaults can occur. And my instance is more mundane, less newsworthy. And so I had a hard time being like, this was assault. And I had a lot of people telling me, no, this was rape. And I was like, no, didn't end up in the hospital from bleeding or being unconscious. Like I went to the hospital to get the rape kit done on my own terms. And it wasn't like we were rushed to the hospital. So I was like, this isn't anything. This is kind of like, it is what it is. Uh, and then I had to learn that that wasn't consent and that the way that like assaults can happen is on a spectrum. 
And I still have a hard time coming to terms with the fact I was assaulted. And then sometimes I'll use sexually assaulted, but I think for the most part, the language of just being assaulted feels right for me. And then just understanding that some days it changes. But I really have a hard time saying I was raped because my mind goes straight to like what media portrays, what TV shows and movies and the news portrays. And I know that didn't occur to me. And so I'm like, nope, that's not it. And it is who I am, but it doesn't define me was also really beneficial too in that process. And that was hard to understand that it was a lack of consent. And knowing that it wasn't my fault, knowing that I didn't do anything wrong, knowing that the perpetrator wanted control and power over a situation that can happen to anyone. And I just happened to be there in that instance. And that has nothing to do with me. And so understanding that since I didn't say, yeah, that this is now happening to me. And I think that's just something else that I'm learning of like how to say no to people. And then the really cool thing I learned about coercion, which is what like made me feel sad about myself, but then also happy um, is I had a friend who's a sex educator and she was just saying, if you ask someone something and they say no 47 times and 48th time they say yes, is that consent? And in my head, I was like, yeah. And they're like, no, that's coercion because you said no 47 times before then. So now just because you're saying yes, doesn't mean that now it's a consensual experience or you're pressured to say it, which like really hurt because I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> that's real. And then the other part of me was like, okay, that makes sense what I'm experiencing is valid. And I'm not the only person that has had experiences like that. My heart breaks for you, but I feel like it's not an uncommon situation where people view coercion as consent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely not uncommon because at least for me, I wasn't taught what coercion was growing up. Like I said, I had that experience about learning it recently, like within the past five years. If you aren't allowed to say no, then your yes isn't valid because you can't say no. Like your choice of saying no is taken from you. Right. And it's almost kind of like if you're completely exhausted and you're tired of saying no and fighting, that's definitely still a no. Mm-hmm. At least in my experience, I've seen so many things on the TV or in movies where the guy is asking the girl out, the girl says no. And then a few weeks later, guy asks the same girl out, no continue on, continue on, continue on. And eventually the girl says yes. And years later, they're like, oh, that's such a romantic story. Like he never gave up. When really at the beginning, he should have heard no and been like, okay, no. And then just walked away and nothing happened after that. That's it. And end of movie, end of show, they met other people and lived a happy, wonderful life. Unfortunately, that doesn't make TV shows or isn't the romantic gesture that I think a lot of us are taught or seen growing up. And yeah, some people do like the chase. So I don't want to like invalidate anyone who like does enjoy the chase. Then it's also really tough at the same time, because if I say no and you keep on asking, I may feel pressured to say yes, because I don't want to upset you. And it may be safer for me to say yes than you constantly having to ask me and me say no every single time. And like, I remember the first time I said notice someone without like a hesitation and it felt weird and I apologize for saying no and I had to think to myself like no I didn't do anything wrong like I said no because we wanted to say no and I shouldn't have to apologize for that I shouldn't have to apologize for having a boundary I shouldn't have to apologize for putting myself and my needs and wants first and that's also like a very powerful and scary experience as well because you kind of are like oh, we can say no and a repercussion might not happen. And we can say no and this person can actually understand and hear my no and back off and not speak to me again. And then sometimes you're like, well, I said no, but maybe I changed my mind, which happens. And then that's just listening to yourself of like internalizing that this is what I'm wanting, not because I'm feeling guilty for saying no. Right. And you can also kind of flip that on its head. You can have said yes, then all of a sudden that yes becomes a no because of something. Yes, which is so important and so valid because I say yes to going home with someone or say yes to getting a drink with someone. I'm strictly just saying yes to that one instance and I can say no to everything else. Or even once we start to go out for a drink, I may have said yes at first, but once I get there, it may not go right to me and I can say no and I can leave. And a lot of people will view that as rejection or being a tease or leading people on, but it's consent. And if I'm not feeling okay, 
I should definitely have the option to be able to say, no, this is not okay. Because you're not rejecting anyone. You're not being a tease. You're not leading anyone on or wasting anyone's time. You're giving yourself consent and permission to do what feels best for you in that moment. And that can change minute to minute. I think what a lot of women experience is the fear of having to say yes because they're afraid they're going to get attacked or hurt or where they're going to show up on the news because they've rejected someone. Yeah, which is very real. And it does happen to people where they do feel like they have to say yes for safety and survival reasons. And that doesn't mean that we've done anything wrong or that we should feel guilty or shameful for saying yes. We did it from a survival-based skill. And specifically with sex trafficking, like you may be saying yes, but that doesn't mean that you're consenting to it or that you're wanting it. You're doing it because you know if you say no, you may not survive or you may not be anything else. And so you're saying yes, not because you want to, but because it's a survival. And people are like, well, they said yes. And it's like, well, was it (laughs) because it's going to keep them alive and survive? Because it doesn't mean that they're wanting it and they're enthusiastic. They know what they need to do to survive another day. Right. Like I've been reading some stories about women in third world countries where they are excited about getting married because instead of having 800 rapists, I have only one. And like it broke me in half. And she was like, this is how I survive. I want to live. I want to keep thriving. I need to be the best I can be in the situation I've been given. And if this is what I have to do, even if I don't consent, this is what I have to do. And I shouldn't Mm -hmm. feel shamed for it. No one should look down on me for it. I'm doing my best. And that's kind of it. Yeah. You're going from that survival space. And if that's what's going to help you to survive, then that's valid to be excited to get married. Or to be excited to only have to process an event with one person instead of multiple people. So in your work, have you talked to individuals who survived trauma? Mm-hmm. What information have you learned from that? And like, what information has kind of changed your perspective on consent and sexuality and understanding what's okay and what's not okay? I think the most that I've learned being someone who holds that space for people is I'm there to hold the space, the space where they can show up to process emotions. And like, it's not me in that space. I'm just there to hold the space. And so whatever they bring and process may not be what I would do for myself, but that's not my place to say anything. It's just for them to process and me just to witness and know that they have someone that's hearing them, listening to them and believing them. And that's what's most important. And it definitely gets tough sometimes because I see myself and it sucks and I can process that with my own therapist or I do a lot of artwork around what I experience in sessions with people because some things bring up stuff in me. I think that's only natural. We're all human and I have to be able to process it. But I think the major thing that I've learned is from one of my professors and no matter if we're the perpetrator or the person who's being harmed, we're still human at the end of the day. And being able to see people as humans is fucking tough. <laughs> and we do things for a reason, whether I agree with the reason, whether I am able to see the reason, all that matters is that I'm holding that space for that individual and they're able to process and know that they're being heard. And it's definitely tough because I just am like, wow, you know, like we're all humans. And just like I tell myself, what happened to me doesn't define me. And I think it goes, you did what you did. It doesn't have to define you. Like I've done some things to survive and that doesn't define me. I mean, I'm here from them. They've kept me alive, but I get to define me. So you mentioned your artwork Mm -hmm. as kind of a way of healing. So to switch topics just for a moment, what kind of artwork are you diving into right now? My primary background is photography. Kind of like why I got into art therapy was because of a senior thesis that I did, which was how to help heal myself and my relationship towards cis men after being assaulted and kind of like delving into that and processing it. And that's kind of where I was like, oh my God, you can do this with other people. Like this is actually therapy. I just thought this was me processing. So I do prefer photography. I do a lot of work on my iPad. And I think the best thing about art therapies, it's about the process and not about the outcome. So it doesn't need to be what I would submit to a gallery as long as my emotions are regulated and I feel more grounded in the moment. And it's just processing what I'm feeling and kind of getting it out so it's not stuck 
and not like ruminating in me. So beyond the fact that I love that, that you're like, it doesn't have to make a profit. It doesn't have to be for anyone else as long as it's for me and I feel satisfied by it, then goal achieved. I've won. And I've gotten to express myself in a way that is only for me. And that's perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing that's super, super healing. But earlier you mentioned how some of this trauma may have actually impacted you in a positive way. Mm -hmm. I'm going to guess art and art expression is probably one of those ways. Mm -hmm. Would you mind elaborating on a few other areas, even though it really sucks and it's painful to think that going through shit can actually help? God, I feel so angry about that. <laughs> yeah. complex. I don't believe I would be where I am today without the life-impacting events that I have experienced. I think they have given me a lot of resilience and understanding. I see this to a lot of people, but I think I'm a very, very understanding person. But I'm able to see that we're all humans and we all are capable of going through life-impacting events that shape us in one way or another. And that doesn't have to define us. It doesn't have to be the like marker of who we are. And so I like to think some character traits have really heightened in a more positive way due to like what I've experienced. I love everything that you've told me with your art. I absolutely adore it. I love that you found that safe place without having to monetize. And so I'm going to guess that that's one of those areas that has positively been impacted by the trauma and it sucks that I have to say that. But what are some other areas that you have been positively impacted based off having experienced that trauma? Yeah, no, that definitely is a tough question. It definitely was really hard for me to think about it in certain ways within therapy because I don't like to go into toxic positivity realm. I don't like when people call me brave. Oh no, fuck them. Yeah, like what happened to me doesn't make me brave and it doesn't happen to someone else doesn't make them not brave. Or like says that just because I've experienced a life-packing event, this is the marker of making me brave. I have a comment based off that. I'm such an asshole for interrupting you. Yeah. It's, um... No, go. I saw this like Twitter thing and it was talking about in a TV show, strong woman equals they've survived trauma, abuse, and that is your plot point. That's the only thing that has made them brave when people without abuse or without trauma, but also be brave. And just because you've survived those things doesn't make you brave. Just because you haven't, it's pretty much saying exactly what you're saying. Oh my God. But yes, I love that. Yes. No, and then actually, yeah, it's glorified, it's romanticized. And that's like what the quote from an article I had to read in one of my graduate classes this year. It goes, the rape survivor recalls a surprising moment in the midst of addressing a class on rape awareness. Someone asked me, what's the worst thing about being raped? Suddenly I looked at them all and said, the thing I hate the most about it is that it's boring. And they all looked very shocked. And I said, don't get me wrong. It was a terrible thing. I'm not saying that it was boring that it happened. I'm just saying it's been years and I'm not interested in it anymore. It's very interesting the first 50 times or the first 500 times when you have the same phobias and fears. Now I can't get so worked up anymore. I love that. Mm -hmm. Even like me personally, I look at like some of my childhood trauma and they're like, oh no, that sucks that you went through that. And I think about it. And I'm like, oh, but I don't think about it. That's not on my radar anymore. Yes, it contributes to who I am as a person, but I don't sit there in my room every day and be like, oh no, it sucks that A, B, and C happened to me. I just don't think about it. It gets very boring when you don't get worked up or you don't get that anxious fear or you're not as hyper aware as you always were. And that's like just not what people talk about because they think it's more fun when you are anxious and you can't get out of bed and you can't leave your home because you are just have so many fears and phobias. And that's like what we talk about. But we don't talk about when it's not like that. And then you're like, Ugh, now I just kind of have this thing that's part of me. And everyone thinks it's so wonderful that I've survived it. But it's like, did I really survive it? I'm here. But like, what does that even mean that I survived it? That doesn't make me strong because I survived it. It doesn't make me brave because I survived it. I survived it because I survived it. And that also doesn't make me, if for anyone who didn't survive it, that doesn't make them not strong. Really. So it's like, what are these markers of strong and brave? and 
why does having to experience like a life impacting event, why does that have you worthy of being strong and brave? It's always felt like a backhanded compliment. Anytime anyone has ever said, oh, you're so brave for going through that. I didn't choose to go through that. And trust me, if it was up to me, I wouldn't have gone through that. I didn't choose to do it. And it's not like I chose to go into the, a burning building and save someone. I didn't choose to get raped. And I think that's why it bothers me when people say you're strong or brave, because it makes it seem like you had a choice in the impacting event. And I didn't have any choice. So like, why does that make me strong or brave? I love that. And I think even in my own experience, I haven't even thought about it. It's kind of like when someone has lost someone close to them. Their friend has passed away. Their pet has passed away. They've lost someone. And people tell them, oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. It gets better. And yes, but you still are going to have to become a person with that loss. Toxic positivity. Just when anyone says, oh, they're in a better place. And it's like, one, who said that after death, there's a better place? Do the better place would probably be here with me right now on this planet. That you're just telling me that they're in a better place completely invalidates the pain and suffering and grief that I'm experiencing because you're just saying that, you know, they're in a better place now. Right. When someone says they're in a better place, it's like, was the place that they were with me in not a good place? Yeah. Like, what's going on? Like, am I shit or something? Like, okay. Mm-hmm. When it's too silent, and they don't know what to say. They lean on all of these. There's a light at the end of the tunnel saying, acknowledging that you've gone through something. Honestly, they should just be like, you know what? That fucking sucked. And then that's it. I sometimes wish that people would just say, that's a shitty thing. Like that fucking sucked. That is not fair that this is what happened. Instead of being like, well, it makes you brave. Tell me that when I'm ready to hear that. But right now, I just want someone to validate that this is a horrible, shitty experience that I now have to process. And I don't need to hear that it's going to be positive. Because obviously, you know, eventually it will be more manageable. But in that moment, it may not be manageable for you. And so then hearing that it will be manageable, you're like, no, I just want someone to tell me if I can sit and this shitty little feeling and not feel like I have to put on a smile to make everyone happy so that everyone knows that I'm okay. Right. And I think it's that acknowledgement of I'm not okay right now. I don't want to pretend that I'm okay right now. And going through this doesn't mean that I have to make you comfortable. And because if I don't talk about it, then other people who are also experiencing something similar or who have experienced something similar aren't aware that they can talk about it in the first place. If we're silent, We're giving others permission to also be silent within their own traumas and their own pain and grief. And yes, we're getting that shit, everything's going to be better type comments, but we still have to talk about it, even if it sucks. Because if we don't, then if they survive something in the future, then they'll know, hey, it's okay, I can talk about this. Having that open communication. And I think that's why like support groups are wonderful for specific life impacting events because you're with a group of people that have gone through something similar. You just want to know that you're not the only person experiencing this. You want to know you're not the only person feeling this emotion from this event. And being in a room full of people that have their own different paths than you in terms of healing can be really beneficial. But then that's also hard at the same time because you can also judge yourself for not being at the same space someone else is. Why is this person five steps ahead of me? We're human. So I think it's natural that we judge ourselves. I know I'm my worst critic. I absolutely hate that I'm my own worst critic. In terms of healing, I'm constantly like, why am I not here? I thought I healed this aspect of me. Why do I feel like I'm 10 steps backwards? Which can get really difficult to kind of get in that mindset of like, well, we've been in therapy for 10 years. Why are we still feeling this way? Which yeah, it's been a little tough sometimes on your psyche. But I try to like not compare my healing as much as I can, which is very tough to do. And I think that's wonderful. I remember when I was first going through some hard shit and I was finally healing from things that happened years prior and my roommate had gone through a similar experience. I was a complete asshole and I didn't realize why. We were in two stages of healing and we were very different in the way that we were trying to survive what we had gone through. She was still processing everything. And I was in the, I have to keep moving mentality. Mm -hmm. 
And I hate myself that I did this. Every time I looked at her, I was angry that she wasn't moving forward or that she wasn't moving past it or having the music turned all the way up and just pushing to make it to the other side. I felt like she was staying in her grief and within her pain. And I was the problem in that situation. I was judging her for being behind me when really she was probably having a very healthy relationship with her trauma. She was taking time to sit in it while I was running in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. Which can be really hard to kind of realize for yourself. And we all feel differently. We all grieve differently. And I can experience similar events twice. And both of those healing processes are going to be very different. And it's really scary to have to listen to yourself and be like, what does my body need today? Does it need to sit in silence for five hours? Sure. Does it need to go on a run because we feel like we need to run away? Sure. And then a lot of other times I take the escapism route where I'll just mindlessly watch TV or scroll through social media because some days my emotions are very uncomfortable to me. And the idea of like healing or moving forward can seem very scary and uncomfortable. So I'm like, well, let's go backwards in a safer way because that is somehow more manageable. But I'm still having to acknowledge that, well, I'm doing this because I'm really just not wanting to move forward. Right. And it could be your mind saying, I don't want you to move forward because you haven't fully understood what happened. You're not giving yourself that safe space to heal. And earlier you had mentioned that because you had gone through all of these things, they've impacted your life in a way that you're specializing in sex education. You are with the RAIN group. You are with these organizations. And can you tell us a little bit more about that work? So I am no longer volunteering with RAIN just because I didn't have enough time in my schedule to volunteer with them this year. So I stopped doing that, I believe, back in October of 2021. And I try to teach everything that I do in terms of my like identity. I try to make sure that it's who I am as a person, who I am for myself, and who I am as like a upcoming like therapist and sex educator and activist. I'm not graduated in therapy school yet. And I just try to honor how people identify themselves. I try to honor how people heal. I just really try to focus on the sexuality piece. And I come from a viewpoint of like what has helped me as a survivor heal while holding space, knowing that that's not how everyone else is going to heal. And I do a lot of like harm reduction based work instead of prevention based work because things are going to happen. And so trying to prevent it all the time doesn't solve problems. However, having a safety plan or having how to know what to use in the safest way possible to reduce harm is kind of the route that I go in. And it definitely gets tough for me at times. Um, I'm really good at compartmentalizing my emotions. And like bringing things into my own personal therapy when I do get triggered. But surprisingly, what triggers me the most in terms of like the populations I support is not the sexual trauma people have endured. It's usually other things that I thought had no impact on me where I'm like, God, this brought up something from my childhood that I thought we managed back in 2010. And I know I was always very cautious of like, okay, working with people who have experienced sexual trauma can trigger me. I don't know if I was overly cautious about it, but I know that that's something that doesn't trigger me as much as I thought it would. And just being able to help, just being able to create a space for other people to reclaim themselves, reclaim their autonomy, reclaim their identity. I don't know a better way to like honor myself and the work that I've done for myself than holding that others. Like I think that's one of the most positive outcomes of all the life impacting events that I've experienced is being able to hold that space for other people so that they're able to reclaim themselves and who they are. If you're approaching a new client mm -hmm. and you're trying to help them set up a safety plan, what kind of information would you gather from them and what kind of tips would you give them? I always just ask people, how can I best support you in this moment? And then I go from there. You let me know what you need. And I love gathering resources and references for people and making sure they're at 
like they're an accessible language, making sure that obtaining them is accessible as well, whether it's by having to take public transportation, do you need Wi-Fi, do you have to pay for services, if you have kids with you, is there a space for the kids to also be in while you've obtained these services? So there's a lot that goes into it. I never come in with anything. You let me know what you need and then that's where I go because this is about you and what you need. And I think everyone needs different things. And I always potentially will throw in like a few more national generalized crisis text lines and stuff like that that I think are just for good general use that I try to make everything person specific, but then like session specific. So maybe in two weeks, we may need a whole different list of resources. And so then you have this wonderful file of tools to utilize, like where to get exchange your needles, where can I get free SDI testing? What are resources where I can get more accessible physicals? Just kind of like, where are these accessible items in the city? And how do I obtain them? It's kind of like where I go in terms of like an example of someone where to come with something. I love that. And I want to do something a little bit different. And I wonder, I wonder if you're going to be on board. A lot of this podcast episode has been pretty heavy. And I want us to switch to pleasure. If you've made it through all of this crap, and you've dealt with all of this trauma and all of this pain, what I'd really like to talk about is also enjoying pleasure after pain and also enjoying what you enjoy and not feeling ashamed about it. Tough question, but a really good question. I think doing erotic labor really helps me reclaim that sense of autonomy and control over my sexuality, which you don't have to go into sex work or erotic labor. Not everyone who has experienced sexual trauma or abuse goes into erotic labor. Mine just happened to be the reason why. And I think that's a big misconception is the majority of sex workers are in there for non-consensual reasons or because they were abused or they're doing it for their daddy issues or mommy issues. And that's not the case. Sex work is a consensual form of work and labor. And I think that really helped me kind of reclaim my sexuality, reclaim my autonomy, who I am in my body. And that was really powerful. It was great in the form of supporting strippers to help me reclaim my body in the form of dance movement and doing full work. That was really powerful. Like, what is it to be back in my body, moving it in a sensual way that feels good for me? And then from there, just like exploring toys that are good for my pleasure. Using, I built myself like a glass altar. That is my pleasure altar. Just to remember that that is my sexuality and that's the way I honor myself. And that pleasure comes in all shapes and forms. It doesn't always have to be sexual. So whether that's taking a warm bath or listening to music or having a yummy candle on or eating good food or reading a book, enjoying the sun, so many things. So many ways to receive pleasure outside of sexual. And I think that was another big thing for me to discover was what also brings me pleasure outside of sexuality. Because I was someone who became very hypersexual after my assault. and. I wanted to also explore what brings me pleasure outside of that hypersexuality. Do you mind elaborating about why it's so important from both a sexual standpoint, but also a non-sexual standpoint? I think for a lot of people, they can receive pleasure outside of a sexual standpoint, especially if you aren't that much of a sexual human or don't necessarily always receive pleasure in a sexual way. Like I love bath. I love the water. And that is just filled with so much pleasure and joy or like feeling the sun. I'm like a cat some days and I feel like I could just sunbathe for hours in the sun. And just that warmth feels so yummy. And then there's like taking a walk, fresh air, candles. There's so many ways I think to receive pleasure outside of a sexual connotation. And I guess that kind of falls in the line of like self-care. Because sometimes self-care feels more like a chore. I'm like, oh, I have to do this for self-care. Or if I'm like, oh, what's going to bring me pleasure? And then I ask myself permission to receive the pleasure, which is also kind of cool because I'm like asking if this is what my body wants so that I'm getting consent from my body and permission from my body to indulge in this pleasure, sensation, or activity. And then some days the pleasure that I want is strictly sexual. And then that's where I have my plethora of toy altar where I'm able to kind of like get that extra pleasure 
So I always just like figure out what my body wants in that moment or like what is my soul and energy really needing and I kind of lean into that. No, I love that. I'm huge into sustainability and my downfall though is a hot bath. I realize the water bill is so high and it's my fault. And my partner looks at me and is like, what the hell happened? Like, what do you do in there? And I'm just like, I just am in there. And that's it. I'll be in the hot water. I'll play music. Yeah, sometimes I feel like I'm almost falling asleep. And that's what makes me happy. That's all it is. And I will pay the water bill because I know it brings me joy. And I do not regret this. Yeah, I completely understand that whole thing. Because I may try to big windows in my apartment so I'm able to get the sun as much as I can in this space. I love natural light. Like that's really important to me to have that natural light. And there's these like little things that you can add to your day. And I think it's the indulging in it in an intentional way makes it seem less like a chore and it's more pleasure based because you're like, okay, am I really wanting to sit in the dark, cuddled in all my blankets? Or am I wanting to like be cuddled but have the sun near me? Instead of just like forcing myself, knowing that having the sun's obviously going to make me feel better. But if that's not what I'm wanting, I'm also going to force myself to go sit and stare at the sun if I really just want to be in a dark room. No, I love that. With society nowadays, we've been taught to feel guilt towards pleasure. So if I'm taking a long bath or enjoying a nice book, I have a sense of guilt because I'm not doing something productive for society. Like I'm not investing into the world around me. I'm taking them out for myself. And yet I feel a little bit guilty by stealing time for me. Uh, that's so relatable. Do I take the five minutes to myself and be selfish? Or do I not be selfish, but get the work done, but then I'm burned out? And then the five minutes if I do not do anything, that I usually spend the time thinking about how guilty I feel. It's a very lose-lose situation. That's why I've started to ask myself for permission. So I'm like at least giving myself permission to take a break. Giving myself permission to also feel guilty for taking a break for myself because society has made me feel like I can't take a break. And so I've learned that like asking myself has helped a little bit. I just bought a juicer. So I've been making my own fresh squeezed juices, which has been really nice for self-care because I'm a slut for fresh juice. So then every morning I get a, like a fresh juice, which has been really nice. So it's like those little things that are self-care related. So we'll see how sustainable it is for me. But I've learned that self-care is very different when you don't have that much time for self-care. Exactly. And then the world will burn you out so easily. And it's so hard to remember that if you don't finish whatever you're working on, somehow, some way, it will get finished. But if you stop telling your story, that will never get finished. And if you stop caring for yourself, that'll never get finished. So whatever you're giving out into the world, if it's not with the mindset of, I'm in a healthy relationship with my body, I've given myself self-care, I've given myself that time to relax and to breathe a little bit more, then you're not letting other people have that same space within themselves. So I'm so grateful to people like you who are like, I am going to take that moment of pleasure back for myself. And even though I feel guilty about it, maybe one day I will feel less guilty. It's all about feeling a little less guilty because in the end, being in the mental health field, I've had a few professors just share, you can't pour from an empty cup and you have to put on your oxygen mask first before anyone else. And so being in the mental health field, if I'm getting to burnout, I'm not going to be able to hold space for other people. So I like, Make it less about me needing self-care, but like for the betterment of the people I'm supporting or holding space for. So it makes me feel better of like, okay, if I take a break, then like I'll be able to be more present with clients on Monday. And then it's tough. But then the other tough thing that I've had to come through this year is having to, like I bartend part-time right now and having to set up boundary with my schedule, but at the same time needing money to function. And that's been a really tough boundary in terms of self-care because I need money to pay bills, but having to add on extra days is not beneficial for my self-care and my sustainability. And so then that's a huge other conversation to be having. And so then that's where my self-care will diminish really quickly because I need to pay my rent. I have to do this because I need to pay car insurance and X, Y, and Z. And that's what's hard. So in those moments, like I do mindfulness walks sometimes where I'll just like 
focus on a color while I walk to be in the present, the here and now, sometimes I'll listen to music. So I try to be more intentional of my transition spaces to get that little bit of self-care of taking a walk to the cooler in the back if I just need some fresh air and I can't go outside. So I've like learned to implement little tiny ways of able to get like some space for a hot second, even though I'm really not able to fully get space and take a break all the time. I think that's a good protocol because if you cannot even take 15 minutes for yourself, then you have too much going on. So we're talking about platonic pleasure. Now let's talk about sexual pleasure. Yes. So you're a strong advocate for sexual health. You want people to feel that they shouldn't be ashamed for seeking pleasure. Mm -hmm. And if that's with partners, if that's with themselves, who you are and what you do is valid. So I don't even know if I have a question. (laughs) I mean, I do have a question, but I'm blood red. I blame my embarrassment over this, though I'm a strong advocate for self-pleasure. I mean, me personally, I just love (laughs) self-pleasure in all forms and no one should feel ashamed about it. And I know that it's such a hard topic to talk about, especially publicly, Mm -hmm. because we've been taught by society to feel ashamed about it. Like, that's your no-no place. That's your private parts. That's your only behind closed doors from such a young age that it stays with you when you're older. And the people I admire greatly are the people who are like, no, this is my body. I'm owning who I am and I find pleasure and I find comfort in the kinks that I like in erotica that I read. And even though the society I live in makes me want to feel ashamed about it, I'm not. And fuck that. Yeah, fuck anyone that makes you feel ashamed for what you're into, what turns you on, the people who you are attracted to, the people who you are wanting in your space. Life's too short and people unfortunately suck that if they make you feel like you deserve way less or you can't be your true self. So I guess my question is, do you have any advice for people who do feel ashamed about seeking their own pleasure? I would try first off, Maybe like inviting that shame into the space, discovering where that shame's coming from, whether you do that with a therapist, whether you hire a professional in the erotic labor fields to help you explore where that shame's coming from. That's a way to start. There's also asking your body, can we let go of this shame? Knowing that it's not shameful to begin with. Being in sex positive spaces is another great way to start. I always invite people to start out with a toy that is maybe multifunctional. So one that's more of a massager or something that doesn't look as sexual as some of the other sex toys and pleasure toys out there. And then using it on your body in a non-sexual way. So like the wand... It was a massager and then it's now used for clitoral stimulation. But using that and like asking yourself permission, okay, my leg hurts. Can I use this massager on my leg? So you kind of are slowly acclimating your body and your mind of like, okay, we can receive this in a non-sexual way. And then you slowly introduce it in a sexual way if you want to. I walk around and sing karaoke out of my wand just for shits and giggles because that's really fun for me. And I've done a good job of unlearning shame around like sex toys and pleasure toys by like placing them around my apartment and making my apartment as sex positive as possible because that's who I am and I want to honor that part of me. There's erotica, there's like auditory ASMR. There's so many ways I think to like unlearn that shame, but definitely seeking a professional, whether it's a sex educator or a sex therapist or an erotic labor and paying them their time and money for their knowledge is also a really great way because a lot of people do coaching around how to unlearn shame and ways to reclaim that sexuality piece and discovering what pleasure is to you. So it's really about a mindset shift. Yeah. And my philosophy, I would say yes. To me, I think it's a mind shift, but that may also be because I'm going to school for therapy. (laughs) I think for me, discovery was more mind-based. And then adding the physical component of understanding my body and how I want it to work or how it works on its own. You work in the erotic labor industry. And correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. So with that, how can people be more respectful? Because people are assholes, like straight up. Seeing it as it, 
labor form, seeing it as a consensual labor form, bringing it into social justice and social activism lenses, decriminalizing it. There are so many things to do ethically, paying for it by supporting people through their preferred platforms. Yeah, there are so many. Those are kind of like my main ways, but just like understanding that it's a consensual form. And I'm trying to get a group for a workshop together of how therapists can honor sex worker identities in the therapy space to help with that a lot because it's an identity for people and it's a very hidden identity for people for protection very understandable that it's hidden and it's a privilege that I'm able to share that that's my identity a lot of people can't and it definitely makes me sad sometimes but it's an identity that people have and just giving it the same space you give other identities. I'm in the same honoring. I'm just adding it to social justice and social activism. Be awesome. Don't legalize it. Decriminalize it. It's the way to go. Supporting ethically. I think the reason why I asked that question right after I asked the question about shame is because it feels so related. We've been shamed by our own sexual pleasure. And then that also leads to the fact that we want to shame others who are in the erotic labor industry, who find validation doing what they're doing, because for some, not all, of course, it is their chosen field. They do want to be there. Others don't have that same privilege. So honoring everyone where they're at and knowing it is taboo, but it shouldn't be. Yeah. It kind of makes me laugh that it's so taboo at the same time when it's one of like the oldest professions, no matter the reason why people do this as a form of labor, it's valid. Whether you're doing it to support your family, whether you're doing it to get you through school, whether you're doing it to pay medical bills or to help support other family members or because you absolutely love it and it makes you feel good to give other people pleasure. It doesn't matter why, it's valid and it's just as valid as any other profession. And it's very unfortunate that it's not seen as honest, valid work. It's a service. You're paying for a service. You're paying for a product. You're paying for content. And just because we all know sex sells and to use it in advertising or in movies, why is that okay? But when it's actual humans who are doing it for a profession or labor, it's not. Right. And the fact that the male gaze will glorify it, but at the same time, shame it. One of my favorite movies is Pretty Woman. It glorifies it as like a knight in shining armor situation of someone's in trouble. I'm going to whisk them away. And there's so much with it. Mm -hmm. The damsel in distress, this prostitute needs to be saved from the street or I can give her a better life because all she really wants is the money. And then there's love. And that's what everyone wants. Right. And what people don't realize is that erotic labor is so wonderful because say you're interested in a kink, but you didn't feel comfortable sharing that kink with your partner and you were uncomfortable with it and you didn't know how to approach it at all. You could go to a professional and say, I would like to explore X, Y, and Z in a safe place. And knowing that I'm putting myself in your hands but you're also putting your experience in my hands as well. So I'm trusting you with this experience. So why, why in the hell should that be shameful? Because you're, you're almost, you're protecting consent and you're helping people explore who they are without feeling that shame that society puts on them. Yeah. It's it's a great space to explore what you want to explore and like what your desires are, or even just learning more about a specific practice. That's a great place to go and learn hands-on experience or do a specific technique or a specific skill. And then you can take it into with your partner in a different setting. Right. I'm sure there are classes out there about how you get better um, flow jobs. This is how you get better clitoral stimulation. This is how you get better like nipple play and all these other things out there. And it's a safe place where you can fulfill a need that might not be getting fulfilled someplace else. Mm -hmm. And as long as you're very open with your partner, like, hey, I would like to explore this. I love you dearly, but I'm not comfortable exploring it with you right now because I'm still trying to understand myself. It's a learning experience for me. I'm not trying to cheat on you. It's not, I'm being very open about this. Mm -hmm. It's about learning and it's not about having an affair. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think there is stigma that people who go to seek sex work are doing it from an affair standpoint. Some people might, not saying that that isn't the case, but it's about having that open and honest communication. If I have a partner who wants to do something and that's a hard no for me, I still want them at the end of the day to receive pleasure and experience that if that's something they're really into. And I have absolutely no problem with them going to explore it with someone who's a professional. If I know, I know. And I trust them and I just want them to be able to experience their pleasure and knowing that that's not something that I am consenting to and that I am willing to go there with them. And some people even like some places will even allow the partner to watch because it may be really erotic for me to watch my partner do that. Or maybe me seeing it can help me understand what it is. And then maybe I'll start to be able to implement it to my partner. Right, exactly. Because if you have that open communication and your partner is aware that it's something that turns you on, it doesn't mean that you love them any less. It actually means that you love them more by valuing their consent and that they're not comfortable in that situation. Because the alternative is you decide that you want this kink, you want to start implementing it into your sexual relationship with your partner. And when you do that, they get uncomfortable you've coerced them into this situation that they didn't want to be in in the first place. And then you're a complete asshole because you've sexually harassed your partner, like sexually assaulted your partner. So if you don't have that open communication and you don't have that willingness to explore outside alternatives, you're setting yourself up to be a monster. Yeah. And then you're deciding for your partner what they can and can't explore. And like that works for some people. So I don't want to feel like, you are always setting someone up to be a monster because some people can work within that confine. Consent is a tricky thing. I really value the BDSM community for safe words. I feel like every relationship should have a safe word, especially with everything that happened with the Me Too movement. A lot of men had come forward saying like they were afraid. And the only reason you would be afraid in that moment is because you felt that at some point you coerced someone. Mm-hmm. And that something that you've done has been on that line of sexual assault. Mm-hmm. So I think if you have safe words and you have understanding that what's going on right now, mm-hmm. sometimes people actually like it when you say yes or no or stop or don't do that because it turns them on. Mm-hmm. So having safe words like butterflies or anything that wouldn't be involved in sexual play, I don't know, butterflies might be involved in sexual play. I don't know anymore. <laughs> but just a word that normally wouldn't be going on within the scene that you're in protects your partner, protects you, and lets you explore whatever fantasy you want to explore in that moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think I even will include like a safe word that is a hard no stop. And then a safe word that is let's pause and verbalize and process what's happening. Because I might be okay with it, but I need further clarification or I need to see what my body's thinking. And then the other thing that's wonderful about the kink and BDSM community is aftercare. So when you end scene, what do you need to feel grounded afterwards? Because you're not in that space anymore. You're now in your reality space. And so being able to discuss with your partner or partners of like, this is what I need after. And sometimes it may change. And so always kind of checking in of like, this is normally what we do for aftercare, but today I really need to sit alone in the shower and just don't talk for about an hour. Then that's what you need. And I think being able to communicate that is like really wonderful. And that's something that I've implemented a ton in the past few years because it was always like, okay, this happens. And then you kind of just like, okay. (laughs) And then I leave and I'm like, I don't know what to do with myself now because I'm still feeling some type of way, but I didn't understand that you can have aftercare after scenes. Or even just like in vanilla, I do vanilla in quotation marks because vanilla, I think, has 99 different flavors. It really does. And so like vanilla isn't really, yes, yeah, so vanilla isn't really vanilla because it's very unique. I think you can always implement aftercare. It doesn't have to be just within like scene play. I love that because it opens you up to more intimacy with your partner. You're saying, we've enjoyed this moment together. We were very connected. We were very present. And now let's kind of ease our way out of it. Mm -hmm. It's your transition period. Get ready for the next thing that you need to do. Make sure that you're nice and regulated and you can continue with 
whatever you have going on for the rest of the day. So I have a trash question for you. Okay. How do you separate that emotional connection that you have with the people you work with? I mean, like ethically, ethically, I know, but that does happen. It hasn't happened to me, but I know when we review ethic codes, like it can happen. And just being honest with yourself, being honest with the people who need to know, that's what you do because we're humans and we can't control how you feel. So like knowing that you would have to terminate your client because it's not ethical to date them or to be in a relationship with them in any way, shape or form. And it does get tough. I feel a lot of empathy for my clients. And there are times when I just want to give them a hug, but I know that I can't because that's not my role. And that's where the artwork afterwards comes in. That's where talking to peers comes in, where I'm able to like process all of this and being able to honor, like if I felt the urge to give someone a hug, to give myself a hug and to like follow through with that in the most ethical and like safest way possible. But yeah, just doing like a lot of artwork and talking about it has helped. And you can share your emotions. Like I've shared frustration. I've shared understanding of anxiety. So you're able to share, but I can't base my response out of emotion. It's just a lot of pausing, being like, okay, where is this coming from? Is what I'm about to say going to be more Haley trying to be a friend or Haley in the clinician sense? Because we're humans. We're going to have emotions. We're going to do things. But yeah, it's tough. So what I've gathered throughout this whole episode is that over-communication is key. Yeah, (laughs) very much. So people feel awkward communicating their needs. Do you have any advice for those people to feel comfortable communicating whatever they need to feel in sex, within pleasure, within their normal everyday lives, learning to heal past trauma? I don't have an answer because I really have a hard time communicating my needs. But I just try to recognize my needs in that moment, whether it's 20 minutes after what I realized I should have asked for. Because it's very vulnerable to admit that you have needs and that you kind of need assistance with these needs. But I think the first step is admitting to yourself that you have them, exploring it within yourself. And then once you have people that you feel safe to kind of express these needs to incorporating them. If you have a therapist, doing work with the therapist, which is what I do very frequently because needs are tough. They're a pain in the ass. Well, Haley, we've been hanging out for a while. So I'm going to let you go soon. I kind of want to hear your future plans. But I really want to do community-based work in the DC area with end therapy and art therapy, incorporating sexuality, continuing the advocacy work I do with sex workers as well. That's kind of it. So getting back to my photography, that's my main goal once I have more time because that's a big self-care thing for me that I haven't been able to do in a while. Sleeping a lot. (laughs) Have a break. (laughs) Thank you for having me. This was such a wonderful conversation. Thank you for being here. And before you hop away and hopefully have a wonderful rest of your day, where can we find you on the web? Yes, I have a website, which is haleyhasen.com. So H-A-L-E-Y-H-A-S-E-N.com. I am sadly shadow banned from Instagram, but you should be able to find me potentially. And it's Haley Hasen Uncensored. Um, and that's the name of my LLC as well, which is one year old now. Um, so yeah, probably my Instagram and my website are the best ways to reach me. And if you want to schedule a coaching session or any product review or any branded marketing, any of that can be done through my website, which is really cool. And I have my arts up there. I have some resources too. So it's a pretty cool, pretty nifty website that has a lot of stuff. Well, you just mentioned resources. Are there any resources you'd like to shout out? For sex workers, there is the Sex Workers Outreach Project, which has a ton of resources globally. Um, RAIN is the Rape Incest Abuse National Network. Their crisis sex line, which is a really good line. I think those two are like my go-to. Yeah. There's a crisis sex line. I think it's crisissexline.com. And they will talk to you literally about anything. Really good text line to use as well. Whether you just need someone to talk to or you are in a crisis state. 
they can help you with other resources too. I love that. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. No, of course. I, I loved everything that you said. Thank you for sharing your trauma, your healing, and then also your pleasure. Hey, fun little trio. (laughs) Thanks again for listening. If you liked this episode, it would be awesome if you took the time to subscribe. And if you want to send me your thoughts to continue the conversation, email me at info at happyimpulse.com. You can also find me on Instagram at happyimpulse. And as always, thank you for giving a thought.